weekly review this is roman it's friday we're in mid-march it's march no it's not march yet it's february oh goodness it's been that kind of a year i suppose we're in february still uh my apologies oh goodness gracious it's february 16th 2018 we are broadcasting live at Mutiny Radio here in the Mission District in San Francisco. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. We've got some news stories. We'll have some music. I'll get angry. I'm already angry. I woke up angry. Uh, got even more angry when I looked online as to what was happening in the world. So it's probably going to be an angry show. Maybe I'll feel better at the end of it. We don't know. Uh, as per usual, I shouldn't say as per usual, but it's uh, the administration, this government's trying to kill uh, the citizens here faster than usual. There's always been that kind of slow burn of wanting to lock people up and um, harm people who are living in poverty and criminalize people and starve people. And now it's like in hyper, it's like overdrive. Now it's it's in overdrive. And it's quite disheartening and frightening and terrifying. And um, that's my own personal view of it. Every day there's something new. There were there been more. There was a shooting yesterday. There was a shooting this morning. Uh, there, um, the government's threatening to make SNAP or food stamps uh, even less accessible than they already are, and they're already not as accessible as I believe they should be. It's like a whole laundry list of things that are t- they're look- they're looking to take away health the limited health care that already exists. I mean, they're really just trying to kill people, and they're doing it methodically, and they're doing it through policy and through laws, and that's pretty fucking violent, and that's as violent as a shooting. 
because it's happening over time doesn't mean it's any less violent than something that happens immediately. And uh, it would be, I think, in the country's best interest for the citizens. I know a lot of folks are already aware. I think people who listen to the show are already aware of what's happening and are terrified and frustrated and angry and have been for a while now. It's not like things suddenly got bad. Things maybe got worse. Oh, it's it's quite frustrating and and scary. So that's where we're at right now in this world. And uh, I'm here to bring you the news uh, because I feel if I don't talk about it or get it out of my system somehow, uh, it's the least I could do. I'm not solving any problems here, although there are some positive things that are happening and people are fighting back in a lot of great ways. And it's not, I mean, all hope isn't lost. And I get, you know, if there's no point in being hopeful, if, you know, if, we don't, if we're not hopeful or optimistic about some things, then what's the point? However, it does feel very scary. So we shall see what happens. All right. Uh, as per usual, there's some technical issues happening. I'm not sure if this is recording or not. So this could be a, the second lost episode. Maybe it's the third. Who knows? But we're doing it, and hopefully you're listening, and, and that would be great. So... I'll get started with some news stories. Also, start off the show with Alan Parsons' project. Some folks, some sports fans may recognize that. Uh, the the first song, uh, well, it's uh, Eye in the Sky. Well, it's off the album Eye in the Sky by Alan Parsons' project. And the instrumental track is called uh, Sirius, uh, S-I-R-I-U-S. And then it goes into Eye in the Sky. And folks might recognize that from the instrumental song that was used when the Chicago Bulls used to come out. Maybe they still do. I haven't watched professional sports in a decade. Maybe it still happens. We don't know. All right, cool. So getting into some news stories. As I mentioned, there are some positive things. It's mostly uh, treacherous. There are some positive things, though. Um, the positive things aren't really necessarily happening in this country. Uh, that You know, we, we live in a shithole country. I think that's been established. Uh, so something positive we can learn from other places that are not here, perhaps we can do here. And which brings me to this morning. So I'm uh, long, so I usually, uh, I, my, uh, my, my, pref- I like to bike. I don't have a bike at the moment. I'm, I'm public transit. I love public transit. I wish it was better funded. I wish it was more accessible for people and more supported today. There are the Muni cops got on the bus and were checking for people's tickets. And it's like, why are you hassling uh, lower income folks? People who take the bus don't tend to be the ones who have more money. And if someone can't pay to take the bus, the very least you should do is like not hassle them for it. Like how is throwing them off the bus or giving them a ticket? How is penalizing someone who doesn't have the money gonna, going to solve? It makes things worse. Are they ticketing people on the Google bus? No, they're not. So four of them came on the bus and it was like, it felt really threatening. And I was like, Oh, I felt like a hypocrite in a way. Cause I gave them, you know, my, the, my clipper card, you know, and it was just very much like, how, how would I actually react when being questioned by authority, you know, regardless of whether someone is in their eyes able to be there or not. It just seemed to be really, uh, heartbreaking. And they took this one person, you know, it was just like, it was like, so like, just the, I guess there, there's a phrase class trader and that's kind of what it was. Here they are. Um, they're making their money off of penalizing folks for not having enough. And it's just, it's so heartbreaking. And then there was a bootlicker on the bus too, because afterwards this woman and she was wearing purple and I was like, Oh, you give purple a bad, you know, bad name because purple is my favorite color. And she was wearing this purple, purple shoes and a purple, um, blouse i guess and afterwards like later on she but before she got off the bus they they were on the bus for a while and i was like Ugh. oh and i wanted to, to, to say i was oh <sighs> anyway 
so she was like, oh, thank you for like being here. This is the only second time I've been on the bus and people have come in to check for people that people have paid and stuff. And usually like half the bus hasn't paid. And and I was, I was so angry at like this kind of that it's so fascistic, that idea of having to enforce people pay to take public transit, like of all the things that you could be doing that are under the guise of like security. It, that's like not the, not the thing. It was really, I was really angry and frustrated and I already copped a little bit of an, at, like enough of an attitude where I was like, oh, I better, I better, I'm going to get myself into some trouble. I better hold back. And that's been difficult for me. And I think for a lot of other folks too, when you want to really, what would happen if like there were no repercussions and I'm not talking about harming anyone. It's more just like saying what's really on my mind where it's like, do you, and I, I get that under capitalism, there are very few ethical jobs or not as many as there could be. And some of the jobs that are out there for people to support themselves involve um, oppressing other people. I get that. And that fucking sucks. And it doesn't make it right. Oh, I was was so angry. I was so angry. And it was also just, I also, I won't even get into it, but I, I was like, so apparently, so there are some cards where you can have a discounted Clipper card um, for any, anything that's under a disability can be um, like mental health issues, physical issues. You can get like a discounted Clipper card. It's great, especially for BART because BART's really like overpriced. And so they have your photo on it and as well as the expiration date and some other information. And other than that, it works just as like a typical Clipper card um, where folks tag in and out when they get um, in and off BART. And they tag in when they get on for folks who don't live in the Bay area, how it works. You just tag in when you get on the bus and it works for a few different of the Bay area public transit agencies and you, you tag in and, uh, Oh, so apparently if your photo like begins to rub off and they can't see it, they they confiscate the card. Even if it's valid, even if you have money on it, their, their, their job is to confiscate it. And I was, um, it's, it's like, it's obscene. It's ridiculous. It's like how, it's like people are just in a position of power. I can't, I can't, I can't get with it. I can't support that at all. That's really bad. But no, it's not bad. Is that in German there are some city in German in Germany? I'm losing my mind. In Germany, there are cities that are going to trial. Cities are going to tr- cities. I'm going to read the headline from the Guardian. German cities to trial free public transport to cut pollution. Oh, I was hoping it was because it's for the greater good. But that's good, too. Let's also cut pollution. Uh, Plan to be tested in five cities in effort to meet EU air pollution targets and avoid big fines. I was really hoping that it would be because it should be free for all. And if we can also do it to help the environment, that's also great. Carnation Germany has surprised neighbors with a radical proposal to reduce road traffic by making public transport free as Berlin scrambles to meet EU air pollution targets and avoid big fines. The move comes just over two years after Volkswagen's devastating Dieselgate emissions cheating scandal unleashed a wave of anger at the auto industry, a keystone of German prosperity. We are considering public transport free of charge in order to reduce the number of private cars. Three ministers, including the environmental minister, Barbara Hendricks, wrote to the EU Environment Commissioner Carmenu Vela. Another theme of the show is I mispronounce people's names. It's unintentional, and I apologize. Uh, Carmenu Vela 
in a letter seen by AFP Tuesday. Effectively fighting air pollution without any further unnecessary delays is of the highest priority for Germany, the ministers added. The proposal will be tested by the end of this year at the latest in five cities across Western Germany, including former, former capital Bonn and industrial cities Essen and Mannheim. The move is a radical one for the normally staid world of German politics, especially as Chancellor Angela Merkel is presently only governing in a caretaker capacity. As Berlin waits for the center-left Social Democratic Party, SPD, to confirm a hard-fought coalition deal. Oh, we have a phone call. Hello? 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 Okay. All right. Moving along. Uh, on top of ticketless travel, other steps proposed Tuesday include further restrictions on emissions from vehicle fleets like buses and taxis, low emission zones, or support for car sharing cars. Yeah, car sharing schemes. Action is needed soon as Germany and eight fellow EU members, including Spain, France, and Italy, sailed past a, 30, a January 30th deadline to meet EU limits on nitrogen dioxide and fine particles. Vela gave countries extra time to present further pollution-busting measures of le uh, or face legal action. Life-threatening pollution affects more than 130 cities in Europe, according to the commission, causing some 400,000 deaths and costing two, oh, 20 billion euros which is about 24.7 billion US dollars in health spending per year in the block. Countries that fail to keep to EU limits could face legal action at the European Court of Justice, uh, the EU's highest tribunal, which can levy fines on member states. Even without the pressure from Brussels, air quality has surged to the top of Berlin's priorities over the past year. Suspicious Suspicions? Over-manipulated emissions data have spread to other car manufacturers since Volkswagen's 2015 admission to cheating regulatory tests on 11 million vehicles worldwide. Environmentalists brought court cases aimed at banning diesels from parts of some city centers and fears millions of drivers could be affected spurred Merkel into action. Titans like BMW, Mercedes-Benz, parent Daimler, or the world's biggest car maker, Volkswagen, agreed to pay some 250 million euros into a billion euro fund to upgrade local transport. The government should make sure that the car manufacturers finance the emergency measure of free transport, Greenpeace urged, adding, the more parking and road tolls in cities could help reduce urban traffic. On their own account, the auto firms have stepped up plans to electrify their ranges with a barrage of battery-powered or hybrid models planned for the coming decade. Public transport is likely popular in Germany, with the number of journeys increasing regularly over the past 20 years to reach 10.3 billion in 2017. The article goes on a little bit uh, further. They're talking about money a bit, and you know, it'd be nice if they could do it more just for, again, for the greater good. And while we get things worked out here, I'm going to play some more music, and then I'll be back with some more news stories. So you're listening to the Weekly Review, uh, so stay tuned, and we'll be back uh, in a bit. And as I say that, I'm kind of picky about music today. So here we go.
things they just don't pay out Some modest means don't leave much way out In every cradle there's a grave now In every owner there's a slave now Heard somewhere that there is a place
Cafe 
back to the weekly review. That was Ted Leo and the Pharmacists from the 2007 album Living with the Living. And I remember buying that album back when <laughs> these things happened. 2007, a few anti-war songs on there. Always nice to share with folks. Hopefully, folks, you're listening in. We've got some more news, updates. This is for people in Indiana. Uh, for people in Indiana and or with folks with connections to Indiana, uh, this comes from uh, Chase uh, Strangio, who is a lawyer who helped out Chase Chelsea Manning. And there's... Oh, I'll read Chase's post. Here we go. Uh, there is a very harmful bill moving quickly through the legislature. SB 65 is a sweeping sex ed opt-in bill that targets LGBTQ students specifically and could limit all mention of LGBTQ people by teachers and staff. It would also make it harder for all students to access comprehensive sex ed. It has passed the Senate and it is pending now in the House Committee. Target the House, target the governor, make noise. I'll post resources throughout the weekend. The next committee hearing is Tuesday morning at 8.30. So this is coming up. So definitely, um, I know folks in in Indiana are aware of this. For other folks who might not be aware, and you know folks in Indiana, uh, if it's not on their radar, please do mention that they need to be aware about uh, SB 65, which sounds super fucking gross and like a lot of misinformation. And how much misinformation is out there and how that ends up harming people for the most part when people are spouting untruths and that ends up hurting people. So, ugh, that's gross. And also just wanting to share that with people because that's what's happening here. Oh, my. All right, what's next? Um, I'm not a fan of ICE agents. Uh, They're... I just, there's like modern day Gestapo pretty much. And they've been accused of even doing more horrendous things every day. There's like something else. So this comes from democracy now. And this came out on February 14th, ice Seattle official charged with stealing immigrants identities to commit credit card fraud, because it's not enough just to like break people's families apart and deport people. You have to fucking steal from them too. I, ah, it's, ah, fucking grow. I mean, I don't know this. It's just like, it's, it's fucking gross. Uh, and more news on immigration activists and civil liberties advocates are issuing warnings over reports that the immigration and customs enforcement agency known as ice known as to others as Gestapo or Nazis are seeking to become an intelligence agency. Critics say the move would give ice access to an array of raw intelligence data that could lead to further abuses as ice carries out 45's mass deportation efforts and they interview uh, Jake LaPeruque of the independent watchdog agency, the Project on Government Oversight. And Jake says, um, in the last year, ICE, demonstrate, ICE has demonstrated a willingness to be more severe and more arbitrary in its arrests, deportations, and actions. And this would also enable them to a much higher degree. It's really like taking uh, someone who you're not comfortable giving, giving like a kitchen knife to and handing them a grenade. Uh, meanwhile, the chief counsel for ICE in Seattle has been charged with stealing the identities of seven immigrants in order to defraud credit card companies. Rafael Sanchez has resigned from the agency amid the charges and faces one count of aggravated identity theft and another of wire fraud. Oh, fucking gross. Uh, just nothing but rage from over here. Nothing but rage. Moving along. 
I, I knew it was going to be an angry show because there was just so much to be angry about. And I think maybe at the end we'll have a little bit more positive news. But in the meantime, there's just so much that's enraging. And I also happen to have a lot of uh, tabs open in my browser. I set it up ahead of time. Okay, what stories do I want to get to today? And then sometimes I'll go in a random order. Sometimes I try to make a segue. I almost always try to make a segue. This will work. This always works. While the media panicked about campus leftists, the far right surged. And this comes from The Intercept and is written by Natasha Leonard. And it came out on February 14th. And that's pretty much just about everything. It's uh, there's like the actual things that are happening and then how are things reported and all the fear mongering. And when there are folks who are actually being like, oh, hey, there are people here who are dangerous, who are causing harm. And then the people who are calling attention to that are the ones themselves who are targeted. That's the exactly the problem when it's like the kill, kill the messenger is pretty much what's happening right now. If a reader were to judge from popular media accounts, the biggest threat to university life and public discourse would be obvious. The left-wing students on campus fighting various forms of bigotry and other injustices. From liberal broadsheets to Breitbart.com, commentators have taken up a straw man debate, largely shaped by the far right, about campus free speech. Tactics like no platforming and physically confronting neo-Nazis have come under the liberal microscope. The ethics questioned, the proponents decried as the real fascistic force on campus. As Adam Johnson, a contributing analyst for fairness and accuracy in reporting, told me, a November study he conducted found that New York Times has dedicated 21 columns and articles to the subject of conservatives' free speech on campus, while only three covered the silencing of college liberals or leftists. But recently released reports from a pair of prominent nonprofit organizations tell a different story, focusing on the danger we should be addressing, the increased targeting of student spaces by neo-Nazis and white supremacists, and the violence these ideologies entail. The Anti-Defamation League reported that incidents of white supremacist propaganda on U.S. campuses more than tripled in 2017, groups doubling down on campus propagandizing include explicit neo-Nazis like Florida-based Adam Waffen Division, as well as associations like Identity Europa, known for couching its unabashed racist message in thinly veiled uh, panegyrics uh, to protecting Western culture and posters bearing Michelangelo's David. Fucking serious. The alt-right is a movement, and they say alt-right in quotation marks, is a movement of mostly young white males, Carla Hill, senior researcher for the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism, told me. They realize that for any movement to truly grow, they must reach young minds, and this segment of the white supremacist movement has been focused on doing that. The potential gravity of this surge uh, was then underlined by a report from the Southern Poverty Law Center titled simply, The Alt-Right is Killing People. More than 100 people have been killed or injured since 2014 by perpetrators believed to be influenced by the racism and misogyny that defines the so-called alt-right. And uh, I'll take a little editorial note, and that would be added given the the findings of the recent college shooter in Florida who has been trained by white supremacists. Uh, so more than 60 people were killed or injured in quote-unquote alt-right violence last year alone. And I feel like that's a very conservative estimate. Because that's also not including uh, how many people in law enforcement who are white supremacists. I feel like those should also be included in this. Or how many people who happen to be incarcerated who are then harmed by guards. It's I feel like it's a really conservative estimate. And also how many people, when you talk about like, just to like take this out of, out on the more broader sense, when we talk about violence, there's also, there's like the, 
the physical violence and there's also, as I mentioned earlier, policy violence. There's people like living in poverty. That itself is violent. Not giving people food, that's violent. Separating people from their families, that's violent. Hiring discrimination, housing discrimination, that is violent and that leads to death. So I think these numbers are really conservative. Okay. The reports draw no direct link between the rise in white supremacist propaganda and the spike in white supremacist murders, but together they make clear that the threat of alt-right influence on young people above all young white men is anything but academic. Racist ideology is never free of violence, and neither is it in the case of cosplaying, Nazi-adjacent trolls of the alt-right. The Anti-Defamation League reported separately in November that white supremacists and other far-right extremists were responsible for 59% of all extremist-related fatalities in the U.S. in 2017, up from 20% in 2016. While it's too soon for much dispositive social science on the link, it's difficult to consider all this data outside of the Trump era in American politics. Over a year ago, there was no shortage of coverage predicting this sort of uptick in racist violence. The possibility of it occupied the liberal uh, commentariat as Donald Trump's presidency loomed as an unlikely aberration. Opinion pages in late 2016 ran dozens of pieces wondering whether a Trump regime would be a truly fascist one, warning of emboldened white supremacy and neo-Nazism. The predictions have, to an extent, come to fruition. As the Anti-Defamation League and Southern Poverty Law Center reports shows, the American far-right is sucking up more and more oxygen and exacting an increasingly deadly toll on the country. Trump, for his part, has veered dangerously close to condoning the far right's violence. At the very least, he has sought to diffuse blame for it. Even as bigotry and racist violence have dug into their footholds over the course of the last year, many of the same liberal publications, once seemingly obsessed with the threat of fascism, have devoted more energy to decrying the students and staff organizing to expunge hate from their from their mists. Midst. Ugh. At New York Magazine, for example, centrist ideologue Jonathan Chait, uh, Chait decried the repressive methods of and slogans of leftist chanting, shut it down. New York Times neoconservative Barry Weiss tweeted in horror that it was amazing to watch leftists turn free speech into a right-wing issue. In a New York Times op-ed, the president of the University of Oregon, Michael H. Schill, that's a good last name for him, said the campus crusade against fascism was misguided. Ugh. After the right wing Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, descended into violence, including the killing of a pro- protester by a far right rally goer, Trump came under heavy criticism for blaming quote unquote both sides. Yet the mainstream media has too frequently adopted an almost identical stance when it comes to the balance of coverage between left wing and right wing co- demonstrators. In the month following the rally, America's six top broadsheet newspapers ran 28 opinion pieces condemning anti-fascist action, according to FAIR, but only 27 condemning neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and Trump's failure to disavow them. The Anti-Defamation League's November report evidences the flaws in this two-sides position. The group found the far right was responsible for 71% of domestic extremist killings in 2017, but only 3% of the killings were attributed to quote-unquote left-wing extremism, and I have yet to hear about any of these, to be honest. Uh, And even reaching this figure meant that the Anti-Defamation League lumped together anarchists and black nationalists. And I would say in the case, especially for black nationalists, uh, there's self-defense. So I think putting that all all together is, is really misguided. Okay. Alt-right and neo-Nazi organizers 
were there in significant overlap to make no secret of the rhetorical Trojan horse they used to infiltrate campus discourse. When white supremacist groups like the white nationalists of the National Policy Institute, along with Identity Europa, began targeting college campuses in the spring of 2016, they were explicit in their co-option of the liberal lexicon of safe spaces and free speech protections. Here it is, the birth of the free speech movement. So fucking gross. Pronounced far-right group Red Ice in May 2016 at a small rally at the University of Berkeley, California. It was a potent combination, a cynical adoption of traditional liberal and leftist speech mixed with a genuine desire to be able to spread ideologies of hate in public without interference. Liberal centrists swallowed it whole. Wittingly or not, it was a devilish sleight of hand Neo-fascists relying on American liberalism's unmatched fetishization of projected speech in order to claim that the real fascists are in fact the ones who would see them silenced. Debates about whether to give a platform to far-right speakers and which ones are about ethics and tactics. These issues have been addressed at length, including by me, the author of this piece, uh, uh, I'll, I'll name uh, Natasha Leonard, uh, and we don't need to go over it again. Suffice it to say that the anti-authoritarian Antifa groups criticized for violating the First Amendment rights of white supremacists are not in the habit of asking for government or institutional suppression of anything, let alone speech. The decision to counter hate speech with confrontational protests is not a constitutional violation, even if certain tactics cross the line into Ill- illegality. And for the most part, anti-fascist strategy is to draw large protest crowds in order to shut down far-right gatherings, using numbers to reduce the likelihood of violence. All this comes amid a very real threat of progressive students and faculty on campus to their lives, yes, but also their livelihoods, and even, dare we say it, their ability to speak out. When faculty members have come under attack and lose positions for their support of the international boycott against Israel, when events on the issue have been canceled and Israel lobbyists push for banning boycott activity on campus, no cottage industry of media outrage emerges to crow about pro-Palestinian groups' free speech. The Anti-Defamation League, for its part, is a longtime foe of the Palestinian rights movement, boycotts of Israel, and Antifa actions. But even with this history, the group is issuing dire warnings about the immediate dangers of the modern far right, something much of the media has still failed to capture with the necessary gravity. To be generous, the media focused on the free speech canard could reflect the reasonable assumption that readers already know, emboldened White supremacy is bad. To be less generous and more realistic, liberal and centrist media institutions don't care as much about white supremacy as they claim to. White supremacy has never stood at odds with the American status quo. Its rise on college campuses is a disgrace, but in itself is not a disruption. (sighs) So, there we have it. And that's part of the reason I do this show is to provide a voice, one of the many voices... To, to, to call people out on what it is and then the rise in fascism and the rise in, in white supremacy, which already has been existing here in this country since its, its beginning. And if you'd like to read this article, we have posted it on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash weekly rev, looking into alternatives for Facebook. I've heard minds.com is one. We're looking into other, because we know Facebook is just censored. Every t- it's so I've read countless people who have had their accounts, um, either blocked for a while or suspended for pretty much speaking the truth. They somehow think violence is okay and nudity isn't. 
speaking out against uh, how white men seem to be the group of folks who murder people most, that somehow is not okay in Facebook standards. Um, yet uh, hate groups are still able to be there. So pretty gross. If you want to read again this article, it's from The Intercept, and the title is, While the Media Panicked About Campus Leftists, the Far Right Surged. I am pretty fucking depressed. How about you? How about something good? Uh, again, this news, good news does not come from America, the United States of America, I should say. It does come from South America, though. A Brazilian gang held nurses hot, hostage to vaccinate Rio Favela. And this comes from telesor.net or telesortv.net, and this came out pretty recently. And again, finding positive stories that come from outside of the country came out on February 14th. And this is, you know, it's about not relying on the state to get things done. News of Gang's action went viral last week on social media with 2M praised as a modern day Robin Hood. A wanted drug dealer in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, kidnapped medical staff so that his community could be vaccinated against the current crisis of yellow fever in the country, local media reported. Tomas uh, Vieira Gomez, also known as 2N, kidnapped two male nurses from the, it, I'm going to make this a little bit larger so it's easier for me to read, um, Itana vaccination post along with his gang. The group took as many syringes and vaccine doses as they could find, then transported the nurses and equipment to one of the poorest uh, favelas in Rio de Janeiro, Salguero. The gang then watched over as the nurses administered vaccines to the community over the course of two hours. The nurses were driven back to their workplace after they were done. In the report, the two health workers said the kidnappers were not aggressive, saying they only carried out their actions because many in the Salguero Pueblo were not able to visit immunization centers to get their yellow fever shot. News of the gang's action went viral last week on social media, with 2N praised as a modern-day Robin Hood. State Deputy Carlos Mink, a former minister of environmental under Luis Inacio Lula da Silva's presidency, also took to Twitter to comment that the act was a public service. The Municipal Health Secretariat of Rio de Janeiro has said they will open an administrative process to investigate the incident. Or you could also just provide health care for people. That's, that's another thing you can do. So hopefully that will inspire folks. Uh, the idea is just to get, you know, everyone deserves care. Everyone deserves care. And also it's like the investigation. I think that the money and the person power that people use to punish people doing good, it's just ridiculous. And it reminds me of just this morning on Muni with the, the amount of money that you pay someone to check if people have paid for paying on the bus. It's like that money could be funneled into actually maybe providing um, even more low, uh, low tickets for people or like lowing for, it could provide uh <laughs> It could provide bus passes for folks who might not have the income, or it could supplement for the folks who are unable to pay. The money that goes into criminalization in this country is obscene, and militarization instead of rehabilitation. It's just, there's enough resources to go around, it's just not shared. So anyway, there's a happy story for folks. People getting things done, not looking at the state and the government to do it. Oh, but I've got another sad story. Um, It happens. Um, oh, I'm going to, oh, I have a segue for this one. I'm going to read another story first and then I'll read the second story. Um, or maybe let's see what's going to be the best way to do it. Maybe I'll, I'll read the other one first as a background and then, 
Yeah, okay. Starting off, okay, this is what I was going to do. Cool. All right, this comes from Jonathan Watts, and it came out on February 2nd from The Guardian. Almost four environmental defenders a week killed in 2017. Exclusive, 197 people killed last year for defending land, wildlife, or natural resources. New global witness data reveals in recording every defender's death, The Guardian hopes to raise awareness of the deadly struggle on the environmental front line. Ah, this this world. I, I, don't know what, I don't know what to tell you about this world. It's... I mean, so many people have given given their lives to protect the earth. Ugh. The slaughter of people defending their land or environment continued unabated in 2017 with new research showing almost four people a week were killed worldwide in struggles against mines, plantations, poachers, and infrastructure projects. The toll of 197 in 2017, which has risen fourfold since it was first compiled in 2002, underscores the violence on the front lines, front, on the frontiers of a global economy driven by expansion and consumption. The situation remains critical until communities are genuinely included in decisions around the use of their land and natural resources. Those who speak out will continue to face harassment, imprisonment, and the threat of murder, said Ben Leather. That's a good name. Interesting name. Senior campaigner for Global Witness. But there was a glimmer of hope that after four consecutive increases, the number of deaths has flattened off amid, I guess, when there's no one left to kill, right? I'll, I'll try not to be so cynical. It's really hard not to today. Uh, the number of deaths has flattened off amid growing global awareness of the crisis and a renewed push for multinational companies to take more responsibility and for governments to tackle impunity. Most of the killings occurred in remote forest areas of developing countries, particularly in Latin America, where the abundance of resources is often in inverse proportion to the authority of law enforcement or, excuse me, in inverse to proportion to the authority of the law or environmental regulation. Extractive industries were one of the deadliest drivers of violence, according to the figures, which were shared exclusively with The Guardian in an ongoing collaboration with Global Witness to name every victim. Mining conflicts accounted... Mining conflicts? Mining conflicts. Mining conflicts accounted for 36 killings, several of them linked to booming global demand for construction materials. In India, three members of the Yadav Yadav family... uh, Niranjan, Uday, and Vim, Vimlesh were murdered last May as they tried to prevent the extraction of sand from a riverbank by their village in Jatpura. In Turkey, a retired couple, Ali and Aysin Buyukonodhosu were gunned down in their home after they won a legal battle to close a marble quarry that supplied blocks for upscale hotels and municipal monuments. Gee, fuck. <sighs> the hunger for minerals was also blamed for turning the Andes into a war zone with high-profile conflicts between indigenous groups and the owners of Las Bombas Copper Mine in Peru and El Cadejon Coal Mine in Colombia. Agribusiness was the biggest driver of violence as supermarket demand for soy, palm oil, sugarcane, and beef provided a financial incentive for plantations and ranches to push deeper into indigenous territory and other communal land. (sighs) With many of the tensions focused in the Amazon, Brazil, with 45 killings, was once again the deadliest country for defenders. Relative to size, however, smaller Amazonian neighbors were more dangerous. 
Colombia suffered 32 deaths, largely due to an uptick of land conflicts and assassinations in the wake of the 2015 peace deal, which left a power vacuum in regions previously operated by FARC guerrillas. Among the most prominent victims was Ephigenia Vasquez, a radio and video journalist from the Coco... Coconuco community who was shot during a protest to liberate Mother Earth. Peru witnessed the worst massacres of the year in September when six farmers were killed by a criminal gang who wanted to acquire their land cheaply and to sell it at a hefty profit to palm oil businesses. I guess there should be a boycott out there for, for palm oil for folks if not already to boycott palm oil. Gangs and governments were largely responsible for the bloodshed in the second and fourth countries on the list. Mexico with 15 killings, a more than five-fold rise over the previous year, and the Philippines, which with 41 deaths was once again the most murderous country for defenders in Asia. A broader crackdown by the country's president, Rodrigo Duterte, uh, excuse me, uh, Duterte, uh, Duterte, Oh, sorry, was a key factor when his soldiers massacred eight Lumad in Lake Cebu on December 3rd. The government claimed they died in a firefight with rebels, but fellow activists insisted they were killed for opposing a coal mine and coffee plantation on their ancestral land. In Africa, the greatest threat came from poachers and the illegal wildlife trade, particularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where four rangers and a porter were ambushed and killed in July. But the highest-profile victim last year of the poaching conflict was Wade uh, Lauder, an influential conservationist who was murdered in Tanzania after receiving death threats. Global Witness believe many more murders go unreported. Defenders are also being beaten, criminalized, threatened, or harassed. In a recent example, Ecuadorian forest activist Patricia Guarlinga reported last month that attackers had thrown rocks through her windows and yelled death threats at her. This is common. The EU-funded Environmental Justice Atlas has identified more than 2,335 cases of tension over water, territory, pollution, or extractive industries, and researchers say the number and intensity are growing. Justice is rare. The assassins are often hired by businessmen or politicians and usually go unpunished. Defenders, who tend to be from poor or indigenous communities, are criminalized and targeted by police or corporate security guards. When they are killed, their families have little recourse to justice or media exposure. But there are patches of progress. Some countries saw falls, notably Honduras and Nicaragua, through activists, though activists remain in a vulnerable situation. Civil society groups and international institutions are also increasingly mobilizing behind environmental rights. Last month, 116 organizations in the Philippines launched a petition declaring it is not a crime to defend the environment. Campaigners for indigenous communities have taken their struggle to global climate talks and the United Nations. Some international institutions are willing to listen. The following criticism for having backed the Honduran Hydro Project Linked to the murder of activist Berta Caceres, the Dutch development bank, FMO, has broken ground by declaring the safety of human rights defenders to be a key factor in future investment decisions. The time has come for more investors to step up and take measures which guarantee that their money isn't feeling a tax against activists, said Leather. The UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment, John Knox, urged governments to address the culture of impunity and said that the media had an important role in boosting transparency. 
environmentalists have been at risk for many years, but the full extent of the global uh, of the global crisis has only come has only become clear as a result of the work of Global Witness and The Guardian to identify every environmental defender killed because of their work, Knox said. As a result, it's possible to see more clearly the underlying causes and risk factors, including the, f- the failures of governments to protect these defenders from threats and violence. I think that there are some signs that governments are starting to respond to the increasing international attention that these cases... to, to uh, uh, Excuse me. I think that there are some signs that governments are starting to respond to the increasing international attention to these cases, but much more needs to be done. Fuck. And it's like, in my mind, I knew things were bad, and then it's like a sense of just how bad they are. And again, this comes from The Guardian, and it's written by Jonathan Watts, and it came out on February 2nd. So that was earlier this month, if you'd like all the full details of that. Oh. My goodness gracious. <sighs> so I'm going to read one more article and then we'll take another music break because I think that will be that will be pretty helpful for us. Um, oh, goodness gracious. It's just, yeah. It's, it's, there's, there's just a lot. There's a lot happening. So um, it's going to take a moment to load here. And this has to do with the EPA. And as we know, with this current administration, they have found pretty much the, they've with all the different departments, they found like the opposite people who should be running the departments and they put them in charge. And so when you think about after, I thought it'd be good to read this, this upcoming article right after the previous one, just to, just to like put things in perspective for folks. And this comes from Time Magazine. I know it's a bit mainstream for me for us, but here we go. Um, after hearing about all the murders of all the people who are actually prevented, or preventing, actually protecting the environment, uh, EPA head says he needs to fly first class because people are mean to him in coach. Now, I wonder if it's like a class thing, like he has to, I mean, like, is it because he's a fucking evil person or let's find out. And this was written by uh, Michael um, B. Secker, from the oh AP, so AP's fairly moderate and reliable as far as things go. And this came out on February fourteenth. The head of the Environmental Protection Agency has broken months of silence about his frequent premium. How can you be okay? How okay? How can you be like all about the fucking environment and be flying, fucking flying all the time? Okay, okay. Um, his frequent premium, and also he's like a fucking flying first class too. It's like no, no, no. Um, oh, at taxpayer expense. Oh, he just, he gets gets he gets he gets worse and worse. Let me actually finish the article before I totally. Um, oh, I didn't meditate today before the show. I don't know if you can tell. I haven't meditated yet today. I will. That's something on my to do list. The head of the Environmental Protection Agency has broken months of silence about his frequent premium class flights at taxpayer expense, saying he needs to fly first class because of unpleasant interactions with other travelers. EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt spoke about his flight costs on Tuesday in a pair of interviews in New Hampshire following a first-class flight to meet with the state's Republican governor and tour a toxic waste site. I, I'm, gonna, I'm imagining something in my mind. Maybe you can read my mind 
Um, it deals with a location and people I just read about and something happening at that. Okay, I'm going to put it there in our, our telepathic collective unconscious. Uh, okay, moving along. Pruitt told the New Hampshire union leader he has some, quote unquote, he had some incidents on flights shortly after his appointment by 45 last year. We live in a very toxic environment politically. Gee, oh, oh God, what a fucking asshole. Uh, politically around issues of the environment, says Pruitt, who confirmed to the newspaper that he had flown first class from Washington to Boston before continuing on to New Hampshire. It's not even that long of a fucking flight. Are you kidding me? Oh, my gosh. Uh, we, uh, I can't. All right, I'm okay, I'm okay. We've reached the point where there's not much civility in the marketplace, and it's created, you know, it's created some issues in the security detail. The level of protection is determined by the level of threat. He's a fucking threat. He is a threat. These people in positions of power are threats to the environment, and they're threats to people. Oh, my gosh. Pruitt is the first EPA administrator to have a 24-hour security detail that accompanies him at all times, even at the agency's headquarters in Washington. Ugh, that's that's why these folks are still walking around. They got the security detail. He has also taken other security precautions, including the addition of a $25,000 soundproof privacy booth. I just had a thought of, like, what's there? It's like a game show. Maybe when I was on when I was, when I was a kid and someone was, like, in a booth, like a soundproof booth. That's my that's my image I'm, I'm getting in my mind. Okay, so he's in a $25,000 soundproof. That could also, you know, 25... Okay. <sighs> everything's backwards. Everything's backwards. We just have to admit everything's backwards in the world. We're not, there's like nothing wrong with us. The world is fucking backwards. Society is backwards. Okay. Moving along. So he's in the soundproof, soundproof privacy booth in quotes to prevent eavesdropping on his phone calls and spending five, $3,000 to have his office swept for hidden listening devices. Um, hopefully someone on the inside can do, I mean, you know, if you're doing your fucking job at the EPA, you should have nothing to fucking hide. Jobs to protect. Your job is to protect the environment. It's like you don't hear. There are. I just read an article about if it's four people a week, that's hundreds. There are hundreds of people throughout time, more than probably throughout time, but like a hundred, hundreds of people a fucking year who are murdered just for protecting their land, actually protecting the earth for nothing. And this fucker is like, oh, I'm going to spend money to have a, be in a soundproof booth and to have like someone sweep up to make sure that no one's like listening to what I have to say. Evil fucker. Or I should say his behavior is evil. I'll, I'll do that. I'll be kind here. Pruitt has said he has not involved... He was not involved in any decision for him to fly first class. He also didn't turn it down either, though. There has been instances, unfortunately, during my time as administrator, as I've flown and spent time, my interaction, that's not been the best, Pruitt told WMUR-TV in Manchester, New Hampshire. And so, ingress and egress off the plane, that's all decisions made by our security detail team, by the chief of staff, by the administration. I don't make any of those decisions. They place me on a plane where they think it's best from a safety perspective. Safety for whom? Not safety for the rest of us. Because if it was actually like safety for the rest of us, he wouldn't be in charge of anything. Oh, goodness. Pru was asked about these issue, was about, 
I can I can get through this. I can. I promise. Pruitt was asked about the issue following a Washington Post report on Sunday that detailed some of his travel expenses, including a one thousand six hundred forty-one dollar and forty-three cent first class seat for a short flight in June from Washington to D.C. Damn, you know a lot of us take the fucking bus from D.C. to New York. <laughs> it's like thirty bucks or something. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm gonna calm down. I'm gonna calm down calming down calming down like what it's a six hour drive anyway fuck pruitt's ticket cost six times what epa paid for his aides seated in coach his seat cost six times wow what is his aides paid for okay the Associated Press reported in July and again in December that spending on commercial airline tickets purchased for Pruitt indicated he was flying in premium class seats. EPA's press office has repeatedly refused to comment on whether Pruitt was flying first class. Federal regulations allow government travelers to fly business class or first class when no cheaper options are reasonably available, quote unquote, or if there are exceptional security circumstances. However, past federal audits have found that those rules have been routinely violated by high-ranking government officials under both Republican and Democratic administrations. The use of luxury air travel by members of Trump's cabinet has been under scrutiny for months after the designation of Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price in September. Following media reports, he spent at least $400,000 in taxpayer funds on private jets for himself and his staff. A report released Wednesday by the Inspector General at the Department of Veterans Affairs found that Secretary David Shulkin and his staff made false representations to justify his wife accompanying him at taxpayer expense on an 11-day European trip that was mixed business and sightseeing. I hate these people so much! I have to say it. I'm trying not to yell into the mic. I want to be I'm sensitive to your ears. I'm fucking... I mean... Karma cannot come soon enough. Record show Pruitt has taken at least four flights on non-commercial aircraft, costing more than $58,000. EPA, EPA has said that all of those flights were necessary and pre-approved by ethics lawyers. How, do you, how does one become an ethics lawyer? I'm curious about that. EPA spokesman Johan Wilcox did not immediately respond Wednesday to questions about whether Pruitt has been, had been granted similar waivers, allowing him to fly premium class or about the past security incidents to which Pruitt referred. Pruitt's frequent, this is going on and on, and I'm getting angrier and angrier. I'll read the last. Um, uh, I can't even read, I can't. It goes on for a few more paragraphs, and I'm getting angrier and angrier. And I'm thinking all about playing music <laughs> that will not shift the mood, but maybe yes and the mood a little bit. Like, these fuckers who are horrible. But it's about protecting the environment. So I'm going to play a couple songs um, that are about uh, <sighs> protecting the environment. And the first is going to be the um, original song of God Bless the Grass by Malvina Reynolds. Pete Seeger covered it, and I really appreciate having more female voices on the show. So we're going to play Malvina Reynolds. And go go ahead and like Google her. Find um, She has a lot of songs on youtube like really just great fucking anti-war fucking righteous kick-ass songs including little boxes uh the original version of little boxes which a lot of folks might be familiar with so we'll play this one and then another song and then we'll be back with some more uh stories thanks so much for listening and sticking around 
and I'm going to take a few deep breaths and we'll be back in a little bit. the grass that grows through the crack they roll the concrete over it to try and keep it back the concrete gets tired of what it has to do it breaks and it buckles and the grass grows through and God bless the grass God bless the truth that fights toward the sun They roll the lies over it and think that it is done It moves through the ground and reaches for the air And after a while it is growing everywhere And God bless the grass God bless the grass that grows through cement It's green and it's tender and it's easily bent But after a while it lifts up its head For the grass is living and the stone is dead And God bless the grass God bless the grass that's gentle and low Its roots they are deep and its will is to grow And God bless the truth the friend of the poor and the wild grass growing at the poor man's door And God bless the grass
hopeless Make tomorrow Make tomorrow Make tomorrow today Make tomorrow
And welcome back to the Weekly Review. That was Peter Gabriel. That was Richie Havens on vocals for the song Make Tomorrow, the last song off the album Ovo. And that was a concept album uh, about the earth, I think, and stuff. There's a lot of good songs on there. I appreciate playing it. I feel better afterwards. And then I I don't know if it's a mistake because it's good. To, I was looking for another article to read that I wanted to pull up about something positive happening and then something even, then there's something negative. So I wanted to share. It's also from here in the mission. So I wanted to share to really support uh, Sunrise Restaurant. So um, Casa Justa, Just Cause um, posted, more greed. Sunrise Restaurant, a longtime Mission District favorite for celebrations, meetings, community events, and just a good place to eat. <sighs> Alma, the owner, has been generous with our community. Now the new landlord is raising her rent by $3,000, which means she'll be paying $7,800 a month. Here is a note from her, and they have it in Spanish. Um, I'll read the English as my span. I'm working on my Spanish, and I also feel like I want to do this justice and read it as best as I can. So I will, uh, hello mission community. I'll read, I'll read the English. I, I don't feel comfortable enough with my Spanish yet. That's one of my goals soon to be able to, uh, hello mission community and 24th street regulars. My name is Alma Guerra and excuse me, Alba Guerra. Um, Yes, uh, Alba Guerra, and I'm the owner of Sunrise Restaurant, uh, 3126 24th Street. Unfortunately, after 13 years of service to the community, the new landlord has increased my rent by $3,000 per month, which means now that I'm going to have to pay $7,800 per month starting April 1st. This happens because there is no control on the rent, making smaller businesses disappear due to the fact that they couldn't pay the massive rent. I still don't know what might happen, but I'm going to going to fight it to try to stay here. But without the help of the community, it won't be possible. So I ask your support so we can stay here and continue to be part of this wonderful community. Thank you. So folks, please go out and support Sunrise Restaurant. It's on 24th Street. Again, it's 3126 24th Street. I have, I've been there for brunch. They have a really good brunch. Um, folks who go any time of day, please do support. Try to keep these, these businesses in business. Oh, fuck. Oh. So that's one thing that's been frustrating. Um, so there, then there's like the positive thing, and that's that uh, Black Panther, the film has come out, it came out yesterday. I've heard of folks going to see it on, there's, um, yeah, so folks have already seen it. So it's out in theaters, so encouraging folks to go out and see it, and that's positive. And then, <sighs> I would love to do a show of just positive things, and then it's like people end up being, horrible and i feel like it's one has to talk about what's happening just to like so there's a cinemark which we know is a bad movie theater cinemark and regal are owned by right wing they are they are like anti-gay they support trump and they support a lot of they supported roy moore and like a lot of like right wing politicians they tried to sue theater goers at the aurora shooting in colorado because people anyway they're horrible so there is they're they're playing they're supposed to play black panther the film at the towson towson maryland cinemas and then they last minute said oh there's something wrong with the film we can't show this and then had to give people their money back which and you know for for films they they take the the business for like the opening weekend that makes a big difference so so that was fucked up thing number one and then fucked up thing number two is that there are these false memes going around of white women because (laughs) white women and i (sighs) um so with these fake um like 
having bodily harm done to them and falsely stating that they were attacked by at when they went to go see black panther so these are these memes that are going around spreading uh this false information we live in a fucking shithole country i can't even it's I don't know how I still have any faith in humanity. I do. I'm just constantly mortified by humans behavior to have, to be here on earth, to have this time to make use of what we can, of what we will. And ideally, I don't know about, I kind of want to like be able to help people to speak truth to power to be here to make things a little bit better than when I got here. And it's, I was born in 1980. So I don't know. I mean, things are just been downhill from there in this country. I mean, it's just all been down. I mean, let's, I get that this country was founded on genocide and built on slavery and that's, and we're here and we're living under capitalism and it's violent. And so uh, wanting to recognize that. <sighs> how, how does one living in, in this country make it, Better, or how does one work to undo the structures that are in place that are really problematic and harmful? How does one even just on a daily basis, we have a limited amount of time on this planet, and if we're here in this so-called, I don't believe it is, but the so-called greatest country on earth bullshit thing, you know, what do we do with our time? We should be there to help people. We should be there to listen, spread the truth, or at the very least, like not hurt people, right? Not hurt the environment not spread lies, not further oppress people. So the choices that these people are fucking making that I know it's like generations old and that it keeps on going and going and going is just so fucking reprehensible and so enraging. I don't I mean, I, I mean, how does one even reason with that? And I, I, on. I know I'm mentioning Facebook a lot today and I know it's uh, horrible in a lot of ways. They have those memories that pop up and I'm like, Oh, I'd forgotten. I even believed in that or wrote that. Or so I had a quote that I had shared back in 2010. It was a long time ago. A lot, lots changed since 2010. And it was the, it's been attributed to Moshe Dayan and all. I think there's been a lot of other folks who have said similar things. Uh, if you want to make peace, talk to your, talk to your enemies, not your friends. And I'm kind of getting to the point where like, I don't know what, for someone who's so their view of the world or so view of like myself and like people I care about that their humanity is not even like, they can't even see people's humanity. I don't know how to talk to people like that. I don't. It's, I mean, for one's mental health, it's like, and I get, you know, picking one's battles and I get that folks really need to stand up and speak up and, and, you know, keep on fighting the good fight and not run away from it and not, and not just let it be. I get that. And I'm also feeling like, how, how can people not get it? I, I mean, I'm, I'm at a loss. And it's, it seems it's not even just like, oh, it's not like one person or one. It's like this. And it's, again, it's like also just behavior too. It's not even like the individual because we recognize, well, I wouldn't hope, you know, as soon as like a, a child is born, they're not necessarily born with inherent uh, biases. It's like kind of crafted by, by society and by family and by religion and by schools and uh, by the media. And then uh, there's so much potential for humans. There's so much potential 
Can you imagine if like there was no like if there hadn't been any like fucking wars, if we hadn't created like all this garbage and trash for like fucking oceans, if people hadn't come over here and slaughtered people, and and people hadn't enslaved people, people hadn't been murdered, people weren't continuing to be murdered, people weren't incarcerated, if people shared what they had, if people lived off the land. I can't, everything seems like a fucking illusion that's like the, so the opposite of way, way, the way things should be. When I'm in nature and I love being in nature, what's left of nature, and I'm so glad it still exists, it's like, oh, it makes so much sense. And everything else, it's like a fucking nightmare. The humans like not treating each other well not caring about the environment and I'm not at all being like, Oh, I'm totally innocent. Cause it's like, Hey, I'm a consumer too. I participate. I try not to. And I still, it's, uh, it's really difficult not to. So I'm totally going to implicate myself in all of this as well. How does one like live outside the system? How does one create a new way of being? Cause we can recognize that the system's fucked up. And then in the meantime, we have to create a new way of being. And how do we do that? especially since so many people are so fucking exhausted and so full of so much trauma and pain, like ancestral trauma and pain. How do we even do that? And I know that the spark is there. I know people want it. I mean, what has to happen? Do things have to get to a level that's so low? I know. And then I don't want to, it gets lower and lower every fucking day. And what is it going to take to wake up, wake up people? Cause my main thing is with the fucking, with moderates and people who are just okay with the status quo. And the earlier article, and we we're talking about how the, the media for defending the free speech of white supremacists, it's folks like that, the bodyguards for that, the bodyguards for fascism. They don't realize that they're part of the problem. And what does it take? I have some ideas. I won't say them on the air. Maybe I've implicated myself, I'm sure, over the past few years in one way or another. Perhaps uh, I think about the Hayes Code in, in film history where then the, the Hayes Code, and they, there's some religious folks, Catholic, Catholic religion, you know, they were like, oh, you can't show two people in a bed because... There's no fucking logic to it. Anyway, they had all those things and they're like, oh, you can't show this in a movie. You can't show this. And they had all these restrictions and the filmmakers were like, fuck you. Okay. And so they had to find ways around that to tell their stories and to tell. So they, the audience knew what they were getting at and the filmmakers just had to find ways to be creative to show what they meant. And maybe that's what we're all at here too. It's like, how do we really communicate without saying the certain things that might get us in trouble? Then also, why be afraid to say the certain things? And also recognizing that, you know, things might be good in the short term. I have a lot of great ideas for short-term solutions. I have so many ideas for good for short-term solutions. I don't know how well they'd pan out in the long term, though. So what does that look like? <sighs> Nothing like a, a middle show rant. That really got me going. I'm just so fucking tired. I'm so, and I'm not alone in that. And just the fucking idiocy and the bigotry. People can be better. <sighs> all right it's 134 i'm gonna speak uh i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna yeah 
so there's a few more headlines folks can you can read the articles if you're interested um i've shared most of them on the weekly weekly review webpage. uh next is uh from the intercept how ice works to strip citizenship from naturalized americans and that was written by ian higgins and that came out on february 14th i am not going to read that because i think that will probably end up with me throwing the computer out the window which uh, i yeah Next up, from the San Francisco Chronicle, I know it's a bit right-leaning paper, however it's local, uh, Jenna Lyons has an article, Homeless Man Files Civil Rights Suit After SF Tows Car for Parking Tickets and This Person Happened to Be Living in His Car and the City Fucking Towed It. <sighs> All right. Um, positive news story from San Diego. New bill to guarantee health care access to transgender foster children. Um, I'll read a little bit about this because it's a positive thing, right? Um, transgendered foster children would be guaranteed access to health care. I mean, also, it's like bare minimum. We have a low bar here at the show. Wow, people are treating each other with compassion. That's a positive news story. I will often wonder if, like, extraterrestrial forces are can like... I, I personally would steer clear from Earth. I'd be like, oh, nice scenery. Humans, nope. Bye. Um, however, what, you know, if they like see and hear anything that's happening here, what would make them want to stay or help us? I don't know. I, I don't know. I'd want to help us, but I don't know if I, maybe they have special powers. I'm, I'm not giving up hope. Anything's possible. And you know what? I'd rather be disappointed and keep up, keep hope alive. I have little faith in humanity. All right. But here's something positive that humans did good so far from February 12th. Transgender foster children would be guaranteed access to health care specific to their unique needs under a new bill announced Monday by San Diego Assemblyman Todd Gloria. The Democrats bill would amend the list of foster youth rights to include access to gender affirming health care and gender affirming behavioral health services, such as counseling to cope with gender identity issues or gender confirmation surgery. That list includes such freedoms as accessing the religious services of their choice. Okay. Um, attending court hearings, having private space and being placed in the custody of people who have received training on providing adequate care to LGBTQ youth. And I really hope they have, um, been provided that that i mean a training you know it's like you can train someone and i really hope they're also just right on about it uh we know that transgender and gender non-conforming youth are at much higher risk for developing serious negative health conditions this is especially true for those youth in our foster care system gloria said ab 2119 affirms the right of foster youth to be able to access health health services reflective of their gender identity meaning these children can grow up safe healthy and be exactly who they are meant to be the bill would require county health and human service agencies to ensure that appropriate health care is available to foster youth when they themselves or their caregivers or advocates request it. LGBTQ youth are overrepresented in the foster care system. Among them are those who are transgender, and they give a description of transgender. I'm hoping my listeners know who trans folks are, and gender nonconforming people. They also give a description. In L.A. County, for example, 19% of foster youth identify, identify as LGBTQ. That's 1.5 to 2 times the number of people in the general population who identify as such. Among those foster kids, 5% identify as transgender and 11% as gender nonconforming, according to a study by the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law. Some 13% of LGBTQ foster youth in the study reported being treated poorly 
while in the system compared to less than 6% of non-LGBTQ foster youth. This bill addresses a critical public health crisis in California, lack of access to medically necessary primary care for transgender and gender non-conforming youth in foster care, said Joanna Olson-Kennedy, medical director of the Center for Trans Youth Health and Development at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. These youth need and deserve the same access to health care guaranteed to all youth in out-of-home care. And this legislation will promote the health and well-being of some of the state's most vulnerable young people. Yeah. Positive news story. Um, there's another, another story. I'm going to get to another one dealing with the whole, with, um, with what I was going to next. Oh, and this may take a moment while I, I pull it up. So it's good news, local news. Um, I'll read the, I'll pull it up and read that. Um, yeah. Um, in the meantime, while that comes up, uh, from the independent, China reassigns 60,000 soldiers to plant trees in bid to fight pollution. Um, I would love just that to happen everywhere. If like all people were just, Hey, let's plant trees instead of killing people or taking land. That would be great. I like that idea. So you can find that article at the independent. Oh my goodness. Another story that's in the positive. Um, hopefully uh from npr new york city officials reached deal on shuttering rikers island yay and from february 15th by tanya ballard brown you can find that at npr that's something else that's positive um something else that's also positive harvard and mit sued for neglecting people with disabilities in online courses Advocates say the lack of captions mean that 48 million deaf or hard of hearing Americans are denied access to educational courses. And that was written by James Vincent, and it came out on February 13th, 2015. You can find that on TheVerge.com, which also brings me, I've been wanting to do transcripts of the show for a long time. I'd also like to be able to hire people to do it. Um, I pay to do this show. It's kind of the opposite thing where um, I would like to have the income to be able to pay someone to do that. So putting out the energy and if I could get the show funded, first of all, to help fund the uh, cost of the student, the rental here, we're almost at that goal. Go, please go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Anything helps a dollar a month and onwards would be greatly appreciated. I'd like to get to the point where I can really provide transcripts of the show going all the way back to the beginning and as I mentioned, there are a few lost shows in there. Um, uh, however, most of them are, we have, and to be able to provide uh, transcripts for folks who are unable to hear and and are just a, in a written format, I think would be great. I would love to have that. So that's a goal of mine. It would be great to have that. Another way for folks to access this information and share it with people. I'm speaking it into existence. It will happen. It will happen. Uh, negative news story. I'm not going to read out loud, but the headline, and you can read more about that. Ordinary Americans carried out inhumane acts for Trump. That's from the Baltimore Sun. That came out today. I'm not going to read it because I'm going to get too depressed and also got into a whole... I'm going to... You know, you got to pick your battles. Uh, I've read a lot today that's been really heart-wrenching. There's also been, after the, the school shooting, there's been a lot of articles about who's to blame and, you know, the guns and toxic masculinity and all these things. And unfortunately, there's still the folks putting the mental health crisis on it, even though um, folks with mental health illness uh, were far more likely to harm ourselves than others is a thing. And folks with mental health issues in other countries don't go around massacring people. So that's just awful that that's still kind of part of the storyline that some folks are using 
and also it's really i mean it's about toxic masculinity and these like toxic white men and like this idea of uh fucking violence and i i can't say more about it but just the idea of who's actually being responsible for these and who our country considers to be a terrorist and it's these these young white men carrying out these and white passing men carrying out these like fucking horrible horrible i mean i I would like to be on the same wavelength as, as folks listening and that we get it. We understand it. Things are fucking backwards. Things are backwards. All right. So moving to the story that I was going to, um, Okay. Um, so Jordan Davis is one of the people who was working on this. So thank you, Jordan, and many other folks as well. So many um, advocates here um, in the Bay Area Reporter. It's an article from Matthew S. Bajko, and this came out. Uh, it was published on the 15th. That was yesterday. Mayor signed. Okay, we have a, we have a oh, may. Uh, one day we'll have a, I think we're talking about having a camera in here so you could see me eye roll. That'll be my like Mayor Farrell, her interim mayor, rolling my eyes. However, he signed something. Okay, it doesn't. Low bar for humanity. Long story short, the mayor signed an SRO bathroom law, uh, which is good. (laughs) San Francisco officials have adopted a first-of-its-kind policy requiring a single-room occupancy hotels to designate their single-stall bathrooms and shower facilities as gender-neutral. Yay! I'm going to share this right now. Sharing the good news, because there's a lot of bad news, so we got to share the good news. Great. And where are we? Let me go back to it. Uh, back here. All right. That's great. Um, the change to the city's building codes is meant to aid transgender residents in such housing as well as seniors and disabled people with caretakers of the opposite sex. Uh, I don't believe in the opposite sex, but that's fine. Okay. It is also seen as a benefit for parents with children of the opposite sex. Don't believe in the opposite sex. <laughs> uh, who live in SROs. Mayor Mark Farrell. Interim Mayor Mark Farrell. Signed the new rule into law Wednesday afternoon on the mayor's balcony, on the mayor's balcony, and at City Hall, surrounded by members of the Board of Supervisors and transgender advocates. The signing ceremony, landing on February 14th, served as a valentine I don't believe in Valentine's Day. I think it's bullshit. Continuing on. But it served as a valentine to the LGBT community from San Francisco's elected leaders. According to Jordan Davis, a transgender woman who serves on the San Francisco SRO task force and advocated for the code change, no other jurisdiction in California or another state has implemented a similar policy for their SRO hotels. This is a valentine for the transgender community as well as seniors, the disabled, and women, Davis told the Bay Area Reporter. This is also extremely historic. No gender-neutral restroom bill has ever covered residential spaces residential spaces residential spaces or bathing facilities. The ceremony marked the first time Farrell has added his signature to a legislation benefiting the LGBT community since becoming, oh, I should finish the sentence before I left, (laughs) since becoming the city's interim mayor on January 23rd. He'll be the mayor until the winner of a special election on June 5th is sworn in to serve out the term of late Mayor Ed Lee, who died unexpectedly of a heart attack on December 12th. This is all about equity here in San Francisco and equal access, Farrell said. Farrell, who was appointed by the supervisor, da 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 blah, 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 not really anything, na 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 All right, that's, that's pretty good. All right, that's, that's, what, that's, that's what we got to do. Um, 
that's good. So thank you to the folks for making this happen and the activists for making this happen. That's positive news. Um, oh, goodness. So there's moving along to things that are not, it's not going to be a good segue for this one, but we're at 146. So got 14 minutes left, four minutes technically, but then we'll finish up. Um, one of the horrible things that this administration was trying to do is change the SNAP program and not for the better. So the, the way they would do this is um, NPR has quoted saying that SNAP recipients would get shelf-stable milk, which sounds fucking gross, and not everyone even drinks milk. Or and people are allergic. There's like so many reasons why not to do this. Uh, cereals, pasta, peanut butter, beans, and canned, but no fresh fruit and vegetables. Fucking gross and disgusting. And Savage Feminism posted... Um, um, about the history of this and how it's affected indigenous communities. Welcome to the commodity box program, everybody. Native people can tell you there's never been a consideration for food allergies or nutritional value. It's just what the U.S. government calls tough titties. The commodity program started when we signed treaties and were forced into reservation, onto reservations and in return for land, which we had no real choice but to sign away under threat of murder, uh, we would receive food and health care. The lack of food, in reality, their attempts to starve us to death, is partly where the origin of fry bread came from. So this is a case study over a century in the making. The implementation is unfair, and it is unconscionable, and it is oppressive. But the reality is that this has been going on for a very, very long time. This is just a singular example to me, and this is the author of the piece, uh, of why caring about Native issues, experiences, and policy should be important to non-Native people. This shit circles back around because guaranteed what gets done to Native people will make its way to the larger population at some point. The point where I become bitter, angry, and resentful is when people express outrage that, that, what's, been, that what's been going on with us for centuries is finally happening to them. Whether it's commod boxes or community displacement, if you'd look to history or the Native experience, you'd see that what's being done is a natural expression of what's already been done to us. My point here is that when you're only outraged or educated on an issue when it finally impacts you, that means you intrinsically feel like dispossession, removal, abuse, disappearance, mistreatment, genocide, and colonization of the indigenous population is an okay, in quotation marks, and natural process because it's serving you. That's the shit I'm not okay with. So again, this full post is from Savage Feminism, and you can follow them and uh, like that page. It's at Savage Feminism on Facebook. Oh. Oh. So... There you have it, folks. And we're just about done with the show for today. Um, I've learned a lot. Um, I am still have a lot of rage. I feel it's righteous rage, and I want to talk. I'll reach out to the listeners there. Uh, I've, I, would, I would imagine folks also have lots of righteous and validated rage, and to validate that, um, just because... I think oftentimes when folks are really angry about things that one actually should be angry about, we're told that we shouldn't be or that we're wrong somehow or that we're misguided. And I feel like it's really necessary to just be able to own that and to experience that and to not be gaslit over the, the fact that 
that we have a right to be angry. And I guess the next thing is putting that anger into action. And what does that look like? And I guess it's easy. To, it's, it's not always easy to talk about things. So maybe that's, you know, one step is admitting that we have a problem and this fucking country is a problem. So admitting that and admitting in many ways that it's a problem. And it's, I also recognize it's global too. It's not like there's things that are peaceful everywhere else. I recognize that. So what's next? We, this is, these are the cards that we have. What do we do? How can we communicate with each other? How do we speak up for people? How do we educate others? What do we do? Also without burning out, which is very real. I feel like after the show on Fridays, uh, when the times I have guests and um, we're going to have a guest on next week, really excited for Nava Mao, who's going to be on the show next week. Really excited about that. When I have guests on the show, I feel uh, I get a lot more like life force. And um, also, oh, I also mentioned like the, the Black Pride 4 case in Ohio. There are folks who were protesting the Pride Parade and uh, as we all know, the origins of pride was a riot and folks in the community called the cops on them. And so uh, they were sentenced recently, or I don't think they've been sent. I'm looking to get more information, so I don't want to speak too soon about it. However, sending much love and solidarity to Ripley and all the folks affected by that and just how fucking unfair and unjust things are. And uh, I'm wanting to also provide some support for folks as well. And I'll pull up some information right now. And I hope to have more information next week as well um, for folks. <sighs> and they were, so these were folks who were arrested at the Stonewall Columbus Pride Parade um, last June. And nojusticenopride.org has some information as well. And uh, um, looking for ways for folks to support so this, the trial was on February 12th, which was Monday. And uh, it's feel really... And the, the article at uh, nojusticenopride.org forward slash free dash the dash black pride for the number four. You can find more information there. And... Um, uh, yeah. Um, just wanting to send love and energy for folks who believe in the energy out there uh, and to, to speak the truth and to share what's happening. I'm kind of coming, coming to the end here. I feel like I've spoken a lot and I want to... Um, just provide a little bit more information before we, we go off. Um, Women's Magazine will be an older episode today and Val, Global Val will be in around three, t three o'clock today, I believe, um, for the Common Thread Collective with Val and Diamond Dave. Oh, also, the comedy festival is coming up in March. Check out mutinyradio.fm for more info. There's lots of shows here. Plug, plug, plug the station. You can do a show here. We need people to do shows here. That's something else. When, um, one one can do to help so that's good there's a okay so there's a you caring for the black pride four um it's you caring forward slash black pride four i think if you google that or if you it's a hashtag black pride with the number four and they're they're um part of the way to their goal please do um contribute if you're able um their their goal is forty thousand and they're at thirty three thousand seven hundred fifty um 
going to share for legal support. I'm going to tweet it right now, and then I'll share it on the Facebook webpage. Uh, so you can look at it now. Um, yeah. All right, so I'm about to post this. Check it out. Weekly review. Facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. Good times. All right, it's time for some music. It's time to decompress a little bit. What do we feel like listening to? Oh, I was going to say before that I really, um, I appreciate it when uh, there's folks here because, you know, the more the merrier for sure. So I feel like a kind of anti-authoritarian song. I feel like a song about nature. Uh, do we have to do Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Because that might be something we have to do. Yeah, we'll we'll do that right now. And then uh, stay tuned to Meet New Radio. Thank you so much for listening. And again, any support to the show is greatly appreciated and the station. Check out mutinyradio.fm. Check out patreon.com slash weekly rev. And uh, we'll be back next week.
Flowers come.